Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Ben, a producer here at the IAI. And I'm Charlie, and I'm senior producer here at the IAI. So, Charlie, today we've got the new Ten Commandments. This was a cracker of a debate featuring acclaimed professor of philosophy, Sophie Grace Chapel, clinical psychologist Simon Baron Cohen, and Stoic philosopher Massimo Pigliucci. So this took place at a recent IAI Live event, which was produced by the team here at the IAI. Tell us a bit about it. Yeah, so this debate explores questions like, do we really need codes for living? It also fascinatingly focused on the topic of objective morality and whether morality inheres in the natural world or whether it's just something completely made up by human beings. So what do you reckon? Is objective morality a myth? It depends how you think of what objective is. And a lot of what this debate came down to was how you define objective. If you think of morality as the same fundamentally as mathematics, as objective in that realm, you'll have one view. But Sophie Grace Chapel, for example, radically tried to redefine what objectivity was, and that proved to be an absolutely fascinating debate. It sure did, and much to unpack. But before we do, remember that if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice, and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's now hand over to our host for this debate, Miriam Francois. Hello, and welcome to tonight's debate, The New Ten Commandments, hosted by myself, Miriam Francois. From the Ten Commandments to the Buddhist Eightfold Path, we've traditionally looked to religion to provide ideals and the rules and values to live by. Today, the rules and codes of life are as, or perhaps more likely, to be found in social media convention or self-help help books like Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. But some critics argue all such codes are destined to fail and that it actually is a mistake to try and define ideals and provide rules for living. Should we see attempts to promote rules for life not as an ultimate ideal morality, but as a framework designed to uphold a given social order and set of institutions? Are all codes for living a simplistic frame that hides the deep puzzle of what it is to be alive? Or are ideals not only essential to give us something to believe in and provide a roadmap for living, but also the well-being of society? as a whole. To unpick these issues, we have a fantastic panel of speakers with us. First up, we have Sophie Grace Chapel, who is a professor of philosophy at the Open University, who writes about ethics, politics, feminism, 
and epistemology. Her books include Ethics Beyond the Limits, Knowing What to Do, and Ethics and Experience. And her latest book is Epiphanies and Ethics of Experience out this year, 2022. Next up, we have who is Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York and former co-host of the Rationally Speaking podcast. His research interests include the philosophy of science and the philosophy of biology. And last but certainly not least, Simon Baron Cohen is Professor in the Department of Psychology and Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge and Director of the University's Autism Research Centre, as well as a Fellow of Trinity College. Welcome to our panellists. Thank you for being here with us. My first question is the opening pitch. You each have three minutes to lay out your position in response to this question or questions. This is the one. Can life be reduced to a rule book or is life just too complex with the ideals of one person not necessarily matching another? Sophie Grace, if I can ask you to kick us off. Three minutes. Thank you, Miriam. With a question like that, it's very tempting to think that the answer has got to be no. If someone says, can something be reduced to something else, the answer is usually no. And I'm sure that's right here. I'm sure life can't be reduced to a rule book, but I'd want to say that the very complexity of life is itself a reason why rules are often a good thing to have. And I'd also want to draw attention to the sheer variety of rules. So it's rules that are complex as much as anything else. So we have rules about whether you should, where you should park your car. We have rules about how you should do your nails, which clearly I've been breaking. We have rules about what counts as safe bee laying when you're climbing a mountain. And one example of rules that really struck me was when my children were spending some time at a Canadian primary school in Vancouver about 20 years ago. In the locker room of this primary school, they had a notice which said to these, excuse me, four-year-old and up children, is it safe? Is it fair? Is it kind? And that's one thing that rules can do. They can tell us to follow virtues. So be kind is a rule be safe is a rule. Be fair is a rule. And that's one kind of rule that I think is really useful to us. So I'm someone who works on the virtues and who believes strongly that what we need for a good society is good people. And that means people who have the virtues. Now, people have the virtues when they do a number of things. What makes people virtuous? Big question, which I won't try and crack before my time is up. But certainly one thing that is involved in being virtuous is thinking about others, caring about others, and caring about the value that we encounter around us. And rules can help us do that in lots of different ways, depending on the kinds of rules. Think of all the ways that we use rules. One is rules of thumb. They help us to understand better how to do something. So you're practicing the piano and you think to yourself, I'm going to go through it. And this time I'm going to play all the right hand notes staccato, just as an exercise. And we have rules which have a heuristic value because they help us to see how to do things. We have other rules which are much more serious. We've set up exclusion zones, for example. So people say this slogan, I think, no means no. When a woman refuses, when anybody refuses their consent, you're sexual advances, that's it. No means no. And it's important to respect that rule. It's close to absolute. And respecting the rule is a way of showing, marking yourself as trustworthy and a way of marking yourself as someone who respects other people. And that's a very important kind of rule. So there are different ways in which rules can work. And there are rules which are just there to help us learn how to do something. There are rules which are teachers the virtues. And there are rules which are signal that here's an exclusion zone. Here's a no entry zone. And we're just going to keep out of it. Of course, life can't be reduced to a rule book. But rule books of different kinds can really help. Sophie Grace, thank you so much for kicking us off with that. Massimo, can I send that over to you now? Three minutes for can life be reduced to a rule book? 
if you if the question is asked that way, then the answer very likely is obviously going to be no. Nevertheless, it's a good question of whether rules are helpful, more helpful than detrimental. That's a good way to, to put it. And my take is that they are more detrimental than helpful. When I think of rules, I think things like the Ten Commandments or or, or, or any kind of mostly often religious, although not religious, not necessarily. You have Jordan Peterson's 12 rules and all that sort of stuff. The problem with rules is that they tend to be rigid. Rules are supposed to be followed no matter what. It's independent on the circumstances. Otherwise, they're not rules anymore. They become suggestions. They become way of thinking about stuff. So if you're taking a rule as it's supposed to be or is often intended to be taken, then it's too rigid. And life is, in fact, too complicated for that kind of thing. I do agree with Sophie Grace that the answer there actually is working on character and virtues. I just don't think that virtue ethics is particularly compatible with rulemaking. One should work on one's character because one want to become a better person. And there are a number of different ways of doing that. There are a number of practical exercises. There are a number of ways of thinking about how to become more virtuous. But the answer to any particular ethical question, I think very often is going to be, well, it depends. It depends on the circumstances, depends on the details, and depends on who is acting and why, on the moral agent and why. So I tend to be somewhat skeptical of rules. However, I also want to say that, no, I don't think that the alternative answer is, well, life is too complex and people have different ideas that don't match each other. Just because people have different ideas, it doesn't necessarily mean that some of, that all of those ideas are equivalent. People can be mistaken about ideas. I'm an evolutionary biologist and half of the American population is mistaken about evolution. And just because they have a different opinion, I don't put it on the same level at all. So the fact that we observe, and we do observe a variation in, of course, in ethic, in opinions about ethics, that doesn't necessarily mean that those opinions are all created equal or they are, they should be given similar airing. That said, there are also, researchers have also discovered human universals. That is, there are things, there are types of behaviors, there are approaches to ethical questions that seem to be pretty much universal among human beings. No society, for instance, condones murder. But then the details become, the devil is in the details. What do you mean by murder? Is, is it just generally killing a person? No, because obviously there are situations like self-defense where you are allowed to kill, a, to kill a person. Again, it's complicated. Rules may be, a if they're intended as a general framework, as a sort of a way to orient yourself, and then, however, with the proviso that you should be able to make your mind on the basis of the specific situation, then yes. But generally speaking, the problem is that then people tend to rely too much on rules. They say, well, that's the rule. That's the law. I am not going to do it because the rule says so. Well, no, it's not that simple. Massimo, thank you so much. Simon, over to you. Can life be reduced to a rule book? You have all of three minutes. Yeah, no, thanks. I'm broadly in agreement with both Sophie Grace and Massimo. Maybe one slight disagreement is that you could reduce morality down to one rule, which is the rule of do no harm, sometimes called non-maleficent. So I think if we, before we throw out the idea of can rules help, I would like to hold on to that one. Sophie Grace mentioned a few other kind of broad rules like be kind and be fair. But I think even when you try to pinpoint what are the rules that we really have to hold on to, otherwise we're in a state of, of chaos and anarchy and danger, it really comes down to how are you going to define harm when you say do no harm. So that phrase do no harm, many people know, came out of the Nuremberg Code that was developed after the Second World War, precisely because according to the law, 
doctors in the concentration camps were allowed to experiment on humans in ways that did cause a lot of harm, but the rules said they could, so they did. And uh, so how do we define harm? Probably we need a different approach, which I've worked on in my own work, which is about empathy, that when we're trying to decide what is harm or what is fair or what is kind, we fall back on quite an ancient evolved system in the brain, a circuit in the brain, the empathy circuit, which allows us to compute how somebody else is thinking or feeling and to have an appropriate emotional response to how someone is thinking or feeling. So I would always like to see a rule-based approach combined with a kind of compassion-based or empathy-based approach where we're really checking the rules against our how we recognize other people's feelings. Might we be, even inadvertently, causing harm, causing pain, causing distress? Thank you so much, speakers, there for your opening statements. Let's talk in a little bit more detail now. So we've heard your explanations of whether we can reduce life to a single set of rules and values, but let's dig a little bit deeper, specifically when it comes to the forces behind this. Does, I suppose the first one that I'm going to put to Sophie Grace is, does an objective morality exist that this, these rules could be based on? Well, um, I am an objectivist. I do believe that value is real. And I think value is there as part of the way that we live together and work together. I think it's part of the fabric of things. And I think things that often look very much not values, for example, the notion of a fact, actually, these are deeply, I think, deeply normative notions. To say that something is a fact is to mark it as something that we can trust. And so in, in a sense, I mean, if I'm in a knockabout mood, why shouldn't I be? It's almost cocktail time. I'm in to say who cares about objectivity it's not that we're looking for some kind of cosmic super existing super world objective truth with a capital t which if terry gilliam was doing the the graphics there'd be the words truth inscribed in stone rotating in empty star star studded space what would, that's not what we need even it's there. And I'm an objectivist, so in a sense, I do believe it's there. But that's not what we need. What we need is something that we can trust as a basis for our working together and living together. We, I think this is a kind of massive red herring. We think we need to go up to the stars to bring objectivity down to Earth. But objectivity, objective truth is already there, and it consists in our ability to trust one another. And that's one. I think that's one of the products, the psychological products, of having rules that we keep and are seen to keep. And I think this is where the idea of objectivity comes together with Simon's very interesting stress on empathy, because the link between the two is trust. It's behavior that we can trust, behavior patterns that we can rely on from each other. And that also helps us with empathy, because if we know that people are, at least to some extent, predictable in the way they behave because they keep rules, then that helps us to see into their minds. Massimo, I suspect you will be in full agreement with this notion of objectivity. Actually, no. I'm not. <laughs> I don't think there is such a thing as objective morality, if by that we mean what philosophers refer to as realism. That is the notion that there is a truth of the matter to moral questions, that it's that moral questions are analogous to factual questions or to mathematical questions. I don't think that's the case. That was Kant's perspective, for instance. That's the perspective of most religions. And I don't I can't make sense of it. I don't know where those those truths would uh, come and how we would find out about those truths. However, the interesting part, I think, for me, is that 
just because there is no objective truth out there in terms of ethics, it doesn't mean that ethics is arbitrary. It doesn't mean that that anything goes, that your opinion is, again, is just as good as mine. There is an intermediate position, which is often referred to is in moral philosophy as ethical naturalism. Ethical naturalism is the notion that uh, we need to step back for a second and, and ask ourselves, well, what is ethics anyway? By the way, I'm going to use throughout ethics and morality as synonyms. So if anybody wants to make a distinction, they're, they're welcome, but I'm going to use them as synonyms. And uh, you know, the question is, where does that come from? It comes from the fact that we are we evolved as social animals and we live, we need ways to live together, to cooperate, to function, to regulate more or less our society. And we're not just us, but other social primates. And sure enough, as other social primates we've observed have developed equivalent of what we would call moral behaviors or ethical behaviors. And so that means that the point of ethics is, you know, especially in a advanced human society, meaning a society with language and a complex structure, civilization, et cetera, et cetera, is to maximize the chance that each one of us can flourish. That is the point, right? Now, there are many different ways of doing that. There isn't just one answer. That's why I'm skeptical of rules. And there isn't only one specific way of going about it, which is why I don't think there is an absolute sense of morality. However, there is also a lot of things that don't work, a lot of things that undermine human flourishing. And therefore, those things are, in my book, unethical or immoral. So I guess what I'm saying is, no, there is no such thing as universal morality or objective morality, but there are very strong constraints that being a social animal of a particular kind with certain needs and certain priorities and desires imposes on how we want to behave toward each other, which is, again, the kind of the problem that ethics tries to solve. Simon, I want to bring you in, obviously, at this point. Where does the idea of empathy fit into this? Is empathy one of the objective morals? that we can refer to? Where does it fit into what our other panelists have? Yeah. If the question is, does an objective morality exist? I think I think I would replace the word objective with the word universal. That what we're that often what we're trying to arrive at is a set of universal rules for how to treat one another. And that's what we expect organizations like the United Nations to be there for or the World Health Organization to be there for. And even if we go back to my earlier example about the Nuremberg Code of ethics, they were trying to develop a code that could apply to any society at any time, not just now, but in the future of what counts as ethical. And it includes details about if you're dealing with patients or if you're dealing with with participants in your research about getting consent and so forth. So trying to arrive at things that everybody would agree on, which is what we mean by universal. But where I think that even that is limited is that if you look at the workings of an ethics committee, and I have to put all of my research human research through an ethics committee in my university. Ethics committees don't just go through a tick box where they can say, this looks ethical, it passes all the tests. They sit and discuss because it's the nuance of, of the wording of your study or the methods of your study, which are going to, everything's going to turn on the detail and it needs discussion. The last point I was going to make about universal ethics is, is it's probably impossible because things change with time. So I can imagine that today, animal experimenting is considered to be okay. Um, but I can imagine in the future, there'll be a time when animal 
experimentation will not be considered okay. And even more so, because there are alternatives to animal experimentation, science now has the opportunity to, to use so-called model systems, which do not involve hurting or sacrificing an animal, to test, for example, if a drug might be useful for a particular organ. We can imagine in the future that there'll be a ban on all animal testing. So it, it changes with time, our concepts of what we might all agree, sitting around a table in an ethics committee, we might all agree this is ethical, might be a function of what is available and how have attitudes changed over time. So on that note, I wanted to ask the whole panel, and of course, anyone feel free to jump in with regards to what anyone else has said about this idea of where we derive these objective truths from. Obviously, Massimo doesn't think their objective truths. And Simon, I sort of get the sense you're thinking they're more of an evolving set of what we might call universal truths. So maybe Sophie Grace, do you have some insights for us on where do these objective morals come from? What is the reference point, if any? for ascertaining what they actually are. Well, I want to go back to something that Massimo said, which is that if you didn't have some rules, then you wouldn't have a society at all. So I would like to start, although, as I say, I, I am a point of view of the universe object as well, I think the way to talk about this is not by starting there, because it's just too difficult. I think I'm also interested by Massimo, because Kant famously said two things fill me with wonder and awe, the more I reflect on them. One is the starry heavens above, and the other is the more law within. And when Kant says that, he's drawing out a stoic theme. And the stoic theme is the contrast of order in the universe, the macrocosm, with order in the soul, the microcosm. And so in stoicism, these two things go hand in hand. You have the objectivity out there, the transcendent objectivity, and you also have the objectivity that comes from within, the imminent objectivity. So I was very struck that Massimo apparently doesn't have time for the transcendent objectivity. But what I do want to agree with Massimo about is this, that if we're going to discuss objectivity, then we don't need to worry, actually, with respect to Simon, I don't think we need to worry about the universal, because we don't have to deal with every moral conflict there's ever been. Right now, we have to deal just with this moral conflict. And that's a matter of conversation and negotiation. And I think that when we negotiate with others, I'm thinking the kind of approach that Jürgen Habermas takes to ethics, it starts with conversation. And with any luck, we will be able to negotiate terms out that we can agree to, get, to live together by. And I think that some of those terms that we will negotiate our way to will inevitably take the form of rules. I think rules will be part of what we get if we take that imminent approach to objectivity and we say, look, what can we thrash out together? How can we agree to live together? So I think one of the basic values that we'll have is indeed, as Simon's been saying, empathy. I think another is the thing I've been banging, about, tr banging on about, trust. And I think one thing that trust really needs, and this brings us back to objectivity and truth, one thing trust really needs is the rule, do not tell lies. And when I look at the state of UK and US politics, and indeed Italian politics. The attractiveness of the rule, do not tell lies, especially in public life, especially if you're a journalist or a politician, don't tell lies. The attractiveness of that as a way of getting objectivity together, being able to live together, being able to negotiate, I think is huge. If only people didn't tell lies. Well, but in fact, we do tell lies all the time for good reasons. That was That's one of the standard objections about a Kant universal rule against lying. Yeah. The obvious example is the Nazi officer knocks at my door. Do I lie yeah. about him, about yeah. hiding the Jew in the basement. So again, that's another situation where the general framework is okay. 
generally speaking, you don't want to lie, but you need to use your judgment in a specific case. Also, whenever you, so, so whenever you've got um, refugees in your basement, Massimo, and whenever the Nazis are at the door, you do tell a lie then. Right, but, but then I broke the rule. What percentage of cases, what percentage of your cases is that? But that's like one case. Actually, there are many other cases where I can do the same uh, for, in a more, you know, sort of less dramatic situation. Yeah. So then we have to sort of start agreeing on when is it acceptable, when it's not. And, and I think it gets complicated. As I said, as a general rule, that's okay. As a general sort of tending to behave that way, that's okay. But I want to go back to your issue about transcendence and universal objectivity. I think that was a little too fast. You can't say, oh, let's set that aside. We don't want to talk <laughs> about that. We want uh, to talk about what we need to do right now. Yeah, but what we need to do right now is informed by whatever transcendental view you may or may not have. So I think we do need to talk about it. And I reject the transcend any transcendental view because I think that morality is a human invention. It's a it's an evolutionary invention. That doesn't mean, as I said before, that it's arbitrary, that it's not constrained by a number of factors. So it's not true that anything goes. But nevertheless, I reject anything that it's transcendental. Yeah, you're right. The ancient Stoics believe in a in providential universe that was a living organism. But I have to go with modern science, which tells me that no, the universe is not a living organism mm -hmm. endowed with providential powers. So I, I do think that debate is interesting. I also want to ask about to Simon because th this thing, because I was a little surprised about empathy. As you know, there are some of your colleagues in psychology, Paul Bloom, I think, for instance, at Yale, who are very skeptical of the use of mm -hmm. empathy. And yeah. I think they have a point because yes, empathy is natural. And yes, you don't want a human being without empathy. That's a psychopath. Nevertheless, because empathy is so based on emotional response that we have to certain situations, it's easy to manipulate people through through empathy. It's easy to convince yourself that you should be doing something because you have this gut feeling that's the right thing, but it turns out upon reflection that maybe you shouldn't. And that is why in, in certain philosophical circles, at least, there's a shift from empathy, sympathy. I'm not sure that I'm going to try and separate sympathy and empathy. I think sympathy... Okay. I think sympathy is just one example of empathy. Empathy is the broader umbrella concept, if you like, which is all about being able to imagine someone else's thoughts and feelings, but also having an appropriate emotional response to what you imagine someone is thinking and feeling. And sometimes it's sympathy, sometimes it's joy. There could be all kinds of emotional responses to another person's state of mind, which are appropriate. But let's just go back to some of these examples. So, you know, could we have the rule always tell the truth? We've heard about what happens if you're hiding a Jew in, in the basement and the Nazis knock on the door. So there what you're doing is you're deciding the rule is not sufficient because you have empathy for this Jewish person in the basement. And you know that by handing them over, they will suffer. So you're using your empathy to violate the rule. And I think that's really important because you could imagine there are other times, much milder examples where someone says, do you like my haircut? And right. you tell a white lie because you don't want to hurt their feelings. So again, you're, you're, you're monitoring all the time. We do this all the time. Sometimes we tell lies to not hurt another person's feelings. Sophie Grace, you were talking about trust as the kind of bedrock to how society has to operate. And of course, that's important. But again, it's quite interesting that sometimes we exercise our empathy even without having the opportunity to know, is this person trustworthy? So we see, let's say we walk past a homeless person on the street and we imagine that they're in distress and we go over and offer help to alleviate their distress. We don't know anything about this person. We've had no opportunity to establish trust. We don't know if they're trying to cheat us or whatever, but the general kind of 
way of operating, which is to rely on our empathy, seems to be quite a useful one in many situations that we've described. And just a quick reference to Paul Bloom. He wrote a book called Against Empathy. But actually, if you read it, he's not saying throw out empathy or throw out compassion. He's just saying, let's use a combination. Sometimes rational approaches are useful when you're having to do a cost-benefit analysis. But he's, he makes a, an argument for compassionate rationality. Right. We need to combine different aspects of the mind when we're trying to decide what's the right thing to do. Yeah. Thank you so much to our panel. Look, we've now discussed the sort of larger principle at play, although I'm sure we could go on. I want to shift away from that just briefly and discuss the purpose of morality today. Do we need morality? morality and rules to give us purpose and order, or are morality and rules simply tools used by institutions to reinforce their power and authority from the power of religions to the much sought after power, political moral high ground for over today. Massimo, let me put that to you first. Yeah, that's a great question. I sketched before my ideas about where do I think morality comes from. It's the result of evolution in social, uh, social highly intelligent primates. In terms of, however, when we talk about morality, I think we do need to make a distinction between two radically different ways of thinking about morality or ethics. In most, but not all, moral philosophy, modern moral philosophy, ethics and morality are, is about universal either rules or algorithms. So the two dominant moral philosophies today are some kind of Kantian deontology, that is a rule-based, duty-based approach to ethics, or consequentialism, which utilitarianism is, a, is an example. So we look at, we decide that what we want to do is to maximize people's happiness and minimize people's pain, and then we do whatever it takes or whatever we think it takes to get to that point. What these two perspectives have in common is that they both look at universal kinds of approaches assuming that everybody would benefit or everybody wants the same kind of things and the, at the end of the day. The alternative is what the Greco-Romans developed, what Confucians developed, what a lot of Eastern traditions developed, and what is in fact one about one-third modern moral philosophy, and that's virtue ethics. In virtue ethics, to the word ethics doesn't refer to rules or behaviors or algorithms. It refers more generally to how to live your life. So it's a far broader question than just, is this thing right or wrong? wrong? Is this action right or wrong? And I do think that moral philosophy made a mistake with, with Kant. With the, the Kantian turn was a mistake, and we need to go back to virtual ethics, um, because that is not, when you approach things from a virtual ethical perspective, the first question you ask yourself is not, is this action right or wrong, but am I a good person, and how can I become a better person? And that changes completely the equation in terms of how you think about even what ethics actually is. One brief comment about our rules used by institutions to enforce their power. Yeah, of course, that's one of the problems with rules. That in and of itself doesn't disqualify rules. But yes, we do need to keep in mind that there is, of course, a distinction here between law and morality. You can say, you can we can talk about moral principles, ethical principles, and then you can talk about laws. Now, we, ideally, we want the laws to be informed by ethical principles. But as we know, some laws can be be unjust. And so there is actually a little bit of decoupling there. Authorities tend to rely on law more than on ethical rules. And then they want to convince us that those laws are in fact ethical. And it's up to us to push back when that happens. Sophie Grace, can I bring you in here on the idea that maybe we don't actually need rules? We just need to try and think of ourselves as good people and act in line with that. I was going back to the question you started with, the question 
about is it is it just a social ideology which is imposed on us or are there the rules that we need? Which is it? I think my answer to that was it's both. Like Massimo, I think that social forces are always at work on us trying to get us to fit their mold. Let me go back because I keep going back to the example of honesty and truth. I would say I agree with Massimo that the first thing you think about is the virtues and how you are to respond to the value that you find in the world, the value that you find in other people, the value that you find in the beauty of the world around you. So take the famous murder at the door example that Kant himself discusses. There's one way where you deal with that situation by totting up the benefit, the costs and the benefits. You do it in a consequentialist way. There's another way where you talk about the inherent teleology of speech and words and what it's rational to do with words. And as a Kantian, you can't do this. You can't tell lies ever, not even in this situation. There's a third approach. And this, I think, is a virtue-based approach, which says honesty is a virtue. Honesty really matters. Honesty means telling the truth to those who have the right to hear it. And who are those who have the right to hear it? Normally, anybody has the right to hear it. And like Simon was saying, often we just trust strangers, complete strangers, with the truth or in other ways. But there are situations where someone has manifestly forfeited their right to have you tell them truth. And I think in that situation, the virtue of honesty does not demand that you tell them the truth and may require that you mislead them because they're up to no good. They're trying to murder someone. And honesty, if you like, is overridden by other virtues, such as benevolence towards their potential victims. So I think it's the virtues that generate the rules that we need. That's basically my line. We do need rules. And those rules come from the virtues. Simon, can I bring you into this? Do we need morality and rules to give us purpose and order? Or are they simply tools? And obviously feel free to respond to what's been said. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, I think we'd all be very worried if we threw morality out. I think we all agree that we need a moral code, we need a moral compass. Whether it can be captured by a set of rules, I find problematic. So if we think back to the rules that existed in the US, which permitted slave trading, it was legal to own slaves, it was legal to beat your slaves, it was was legal to to punish your slaves. So the law was, at, at that time, completely out of keeping with what you might, what we were talking about earlier, empathy. What does it feel like to be a slave who is imprisoned, who is beaten, who is deprived of seeing their family and so forth? So law by itself, I think, is we shouldn't rely on laws alone. And that's why we're constantly re-examining the laws that we currently hold to see if they're out of date or not up to the job. In terms of if we look at international conflict as another sort of set of examples, we've all been horrified by what's, what Russia has done to Ukraine over the last few months. And again, what we're seeing is just a set of, a form of behavior where empathy has no place, that the, act, the, the acts of international war, if you like, are purely driven by let's say, wanting control over territory or wanting control over people. So interesting. And I I would love to talk about that more because I've always thought a female perspective in war is often lacking in empathy, not exclusively a female trait, clearly, but um, definitely one missing in those negotiations. I want to ask the panel, feel free to jump in, whoever has strong views on this one, but should we be free then to decide our own rules for life? Don't we need a common set of rules? Isn't there a need for a sort of a, a, a mutually agreed reference point when it comes to these rules or are we just allowed and free and should be to completely decide of our own will and therefore to decide against potentially the value of a moral particular moral framework i think we don't start from scratch ever with this one we always find ourselves in a particular situation and we've already learned things that are 
mother's knee or our father's knee. We've already learned things from our peers at school and from those around us all the time about how to behave. And our society has a rich ethical tradition, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. We do need to engage creatively with that tradition. We're always in the position of taking up what's gone before us and trying to understand it for ourselves. And that's a creative process. And it's a dialogue between us and the society and the background that we find ourselves in. And so I don't think there's a possible situation where we do what Nietzsche supposed we can do, that we just upturn the tables of value and create our own out of nowhere. And Nietzsche and Sartre seem rather keen on the idea that we can just do that kind of act of self-creation. And I don't think it's true because we're embedded in a historical process. But to some extent, there is room for creativity, for moral creativity, and for doing new things with the moral framework that we've inherited. And often it's very good that we do that. For example, I think gay marriage is a good example of taking resources that were there in our society and repurposing them on the basis of new understanding that we have been dehumanizing a set of people who happen to be homosexual. We've been dehumanizing them. We've been seeing them as somehow some kind of scary alien group. And that's the key move. As Simon, I think, probably would agree. The key move in making someone a target for aggression is to dehumanize them. That's always the first thing that people do. Because once they're dehumanized, you can treat them as less than human. No, I, I would agree that we don't start we ever we never start from scratch not only it's a historical process also simon was saying earlier there are some things I, I can add to his example i'm fairly confident that in the future people that eat meat today will be seen ethic unethically there may be an argument there to be made that it's not that in the future eating meat is going to be unethical is it is unethical right now it's just that not enough of us are convinced of it but however things are going to go it certainly is an historical process but again as I before, let's also not forget that historical process actually has really deep roots. It's not just a human historical process, it's an evolutionary historical process. We, our species, didn't start from scratch. Modern primatologists have discovered a number of behaviors in other social primates that are very similar, very analogous to what we would consider ethical behaviors in human beings. Of course, as far as, as we know, capuchin monkeys or bonobo chimpanzees don't actually write papers and books about moral philosophy, and they don't actually actually think rationally and openly about these kind of things. We do, but we also have uh, language. We also have a far more complicated society that changes continuously. And so we do need to have these ongoing conversations. So I would agree, you can't start from scratch. The existentialist or the new approach of radical freedom, it just doesn't exist. Human beings are not tabula rasa, they've never been from the beginning of our history. I'm going to have to draw us to the third theme, I'm afraid, because of time. But Simon, I'll be coming to you immediately okay. for that one. So if there are any points you want to add on to sure. that three. But let's talk about the future. We Will we one day live in a world which ab abandons objective values, ideals, and rules altogether? We've seen, obviously, a lot of abandonment of the idea of religion as a reference point or some kind of otherworldly source, objective source for that. So in the future, can we imagine that will disappear completely? And does that not lead us to a state of complete moral relativism? And is that the world we want to live in? And I'm thinking very specifically, if we can think very concretely about the forces at play in internationally today, there are countries in the world who take very distinctly different views on the value of human life, thinking of the treatment of the Uyghur in China and the value of, obviously, we've spoken about Ukraine and Russia. 
is there a risk that in doing away with the idea of an objective framework that we are now open to whoever's more powerful and able to impose it? Simon. Okay, I'll kick off on this, but also try and maybe relate it to the previous question, because I think if we were trying to throw the rule book out completely, we end up with with basically people adopting, making up their own rules. And the problem there is that we wouldn't then have a clear way of knowing what to do when someone transgresses somebody else's rule. So we've for better or for worse, we've inherited legal systems, which are codes of rules. But I think as Sophie Grace and Massimo have both said, through continuous reflection on whether the rules are still fit for purpose, through dialogue, through through conversation, we're constantly challenging the rules. So I liked the example about, that Sophie Grace gave about how we opted the old rules of marriage, of like who can marry who to be inclusive so that gay marriage laws gay marriage is now legal when we don't have to think back very far when you could be imprisoned for just being gay let alone trying to live in a gay marriage and this idea that we should be constantly challenging i think we can also look at examples like greta turnberg as a climate activist who is asking world leaders to come up with new laws which would make our planet safer in terms of carbon emissions and so forth. I think arguably you could say that she's doing it, as a, as many climate activists are, doing it with a sort of empathy starting point of, do you know, we want to make sure there is a planet for future generations. We can even think about extending empathy to the non-human world, to the world of animals and plants and, and nature itself. I guess it's just a plea or a call to all of us to be constantly looking at how can we revise the existing laws to, to produce a better world. Great, thank you. Sophie, I think that you may agree with at least some of what's being said there. What do you think will, if you're going to cast your eye on the future, where are we headed with the conversation? Is objective truths set to be abandoned? Where is Where are we headed? And can we imagine a society where morality has just been abolished? Yes, I think we can imagine a society where morality has been pretty much abolished. And if you look at some of the more feral and and absolute versions of capitalist living. I think that's what that's what it looks like. It's just a world where the only thing that counts is self-advancement and making money and business prestige and not much else. I and my family, we have a great time watching the series Succession for precisely this reason. And it's both horrifying and hilarious because it's told where all that matters is how will this affect me? And is this good for me or is this bad for me? It's constant ego and it's really not nice. Do we want to live in a world like that? Hell no, of course we don't. But where, to come back to your first question, Miriam, where are things heading? Not in a good way. We're having this conversation in a leaky boat, which is on fire at one end. I'm talking about the climate. And if nothing else concentrates our minds on the necessity to recognise value out there, I think the climate crisis ought to do. I think there's going to be some big kind of tipping point soon in people's attitudes because of the way things are going. There's just got to be. I can't see us going on with this mendacious twaddle that's currently being talked in Britain in particular, which bears no relation to the reality that's coming our way. I call myself a virtue ethicist, but I often think a value ethicist would be a better name because I think it's all about recognising the value which is all around us in the beautiful things we see. And just to go back to slavery, if you can Google Dr Thomas Clark's slavery, 
He was one of the abolitionists in the 18th century. I talk about him a bit in Epiphanies because what Thomas Clarkson had was an epiphany of the humanity of people who were being enslaved in West Africa in his lifetime. And this magnificent description he gives in his anti-slavery book about how evil it is, what's being done to them, and how degrading it is, and how instead of treating other human beings like that, we really need to start by recognizing their value. So in a sense, I'm a value ethicist, not a virtue ethicist. Sophie Grace, thank you. Masimo, I'm giving you a tough challenge here. Two minutes if you can on this question. First of all, like Sophie Grace's optimism, no, I don't think we're going to do anything. I think we're going to go into a catastrophe first, and then we're going to start doing something about it. Human history often has gone that way. I really, unfortunately, I don't see much of a reason to, to be more optimistic in this particular case. However, back to the question of can we imagine a society without rules, for instance, or without ethical frameworks? Yeah, the Stoics did imagine that society, they, but in that case, it was an anarchic society of sages, where everybody is so wise and so empathetic with everybody else, that first of all, they're not going to disagree on anything substantial. And even if they are, they're going to talk it out and, and they're going to resolve it. So sure, but I'm not holding my breath about that kind of society ever actually being attainable. No, I don't think so. I think that so long as there will be human societies, especially human societies with large numbers of people and complex structures, we will need laws, we will need frameworks, we will need either rules or something that behaves, that functions for all effective purposes like a rule. Question again to me is yes, but all of that tends to be from the top down. Rules are imposed by a small number of people or religious authorities or politicians, whatever it is, on other people. The only alternative there is a bottom-up approach where we finally take seriously the notion that ethics is about how do we want to live our life and that the major thing that we should do is to improve ourselves. Start here, not by telling other people what to do. You start with your in front of the mirror. Start with the man or woman in the mirror. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much to our panelists. And thank you, of course, to all of our audience for being with us. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. An interesting debate there, Charlie. Plenty to consider. A lot of different viewpoints, especially around the idea of what objectivity is, whether you can have an objective morality and furthermore whether a rules-based moral system leads to eventual human flourishing or just a form of tyranny. Very interesting indeed. Fascinating. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. And if you did enjoy it, don't forget to subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.